and welcome back to the latest episode of the Thorax BMJ podcast. In this episode, we're going to be talking about what's interesting and exciting in paediatric respiratory research currently and what we can expect to see in the near future. In some ways, this can be seen as a sister episode to a previous podcast in which Pooja spoke to Professor Ian Wall about the future of adult respiratory medicine. Joining me today is Andy Bush, who is a professor of paediatrics and paediatric respirology at Imperial and a consultant paediatric chest physician at the Brompton Hospital. Hello, Andy, and thank you for joining us. Hi, Kate. It's a pleasure. Hi. Um, if it's okay, I just wanted to start by asking you some questions about your own experience of working within paediatric research. Sure. My understanding is that when you were at the beginning of your training, you were initially working within adult medicine um, and research. And can you remember what inspired you to switch towards paediatrics? It's a long time ago. Um, Yes, I can. I was working in the Department of Clinical Physiology at the Brompton Hospital, supervised by the iconic Professor David Dennison and Elliot Scheinborn. And I was researching into the pulmonary circulation in children with congenital heart disease and lung disease. And the research was getting more and more paediatric and it was fascinating and it was more and more of a handicap not being able to handle sick children for myself and relying on other people. So I thought, right, I'll try paediatrics. So I went from being a research fellow at the Brompton on the verge of a senior registrar job back to the bottom of the tree as a senior house (laughs) officer in paediatrics. And I loved it. Very good. And so um, just roughly how long ago was that? That was in the 1980s. So a long time ago. And I know that you've have you've supervised a lot of doctoral students, so PhD and MD students over the years. So what advice would you give to a junior doctor who was at your stage 40 years ago, who's looking at getting into research? I think this is an incredibly exciting time in paediatrics for research. We're seeing that what looked like very nerdy anoraki science is actually (laughs) delivering incredibly powerful treatments. The exemplar of this is cystic fibrosis, where knowledge of the basic biology of the CFTR gene has led to life-transforming treatments, the highly effective modulator therapies. We're seeing patients who are on the transplant list going back to work, getting out of oxygen, women, women getting pregnant and having their own children, having been waiting for a transplant, extraordinary transformative treatments. We're seeing in the neuromuscular diseases, again, incredible developments babies with spinal muscular atrophy type 1 who would have been expected to die within a year or two, never able to sit up, are now actually walking. I mean, extraordinary transformations that have come about because of the knowledge of the detailed basic science of the disease. And there are many other examples, but we're unraveling the science and the scientists are giving us powerful new treatments. It's an, an exciting, fascinating time to be alive and working in medicine. It's very interesting because I'm not a paediatrician. I'm not um, not a respiratory either. I'm going to out myself as an anaesthetist. Um, but I asked one of my friends who is a paediatric trainee and about what he thought was exciting in um, paediatrics at the moment. And the first thing he said to me was the cystic fibrosis yeah. drugs. Yeah. Uh, so, so to excuse my ignorance. Or, um, when did they come into to use? So is the data first began to accumulate about 10 or 12 years ago. And one of the exciting things about the CF community is they started doing these trials in older children and adults, so in 12 and over, for obvious ethical reasons you know, and safety reasons. 
Mm-hmm. They've then taken they've then taken these medicines down into younger and younger children, so that Ivacafta, which is a, a, available for class three mutations, is now available at four months of age. They've the tests have been done, safety has been established, mm-hmm. efficacy with biomarkers has been established. There's a solid evidence base in these infants, so they can start it straight away. Triple therapy, Caftrio, is on the way there. It's licensed in children 6 to 11. We're expecting the license soon in 2 to 5, and it'll soon be available in infants as well. So one of the really exciting things that has happened in the CF community is they have done the absolutely definitive randomized controlled trials to prove these things work. Solid evidence base, not just the opinions of, of people sitting around tables. And that's really exciting and a great achievement by the CF community. So do you work within um, research involved in cystic fibrosis as well? Is that something you do? I do. I'm the main player at the Brompton Hospital has been Professor Jane Davis, who's probably the foremost paediatric CF researcher in the, in, on the planet. And she's done a lot of the trials work, developed a lot of the endpoints, worked with the, the therapeutic networks to get these medications uh, available in, in, in practice. But I do, do, I do see patients with CF. I do some CF research. Mm-hmm. And I've seen the dramatic, dramatic benefits of these medications. And I mean, the science is just absolutely awe-inspiring what has been dis- discovered about the way the gene is processed. It must be especially rewarding to see it on both sides, like to, to be involved in it in the lab or on the science side, and then to see the effects clinically in, in your practice. That must be very rewarding. It certainly is. I mean, to read what the scientists, I mean, I, I'm not a wet lab scientist, but to see what the wet lab scientists have discovered is just is just inspiring. And just to think this is also going to be the way forward in other diseases. And one of the things that the CF scientists have had to tackle is the fact there are some mutations that are very, very rare. Mm-hmm. So maybe only five patients with a particular mutation on the whole planet. So you can't do a big randomized controlled trial in the in these in these patients. So the scientists and the clinicians have developed in vitro testing systems, organized using the patient's own cells to test medications in the test tube. And this has been predictive of response to the medications when given to the patient. And I think this is something that's going to have application well outside cystic fibrosis in other rare diseases where you simply can't do the big trials. Do you know what are the diseases that might have an impact in? Um... Well, my, one of my special interests is interstitial lung disease in children. There mm-hmm. are more than 200 of these. They are incredibly rare. And even if you've got a single gene mutation, like a surfactant protein C mutation, there are many different disease mechanisms, and it's not all the same disease. Mm -hmm. To be able to test medications in the test tube, and this has happened also with another surfactant protein disease-causing gene, ABCA3, we're actually beginning to be able to test in the test tube medications um, repurposed medications to see if they will be effective rather than just giving steroids to everybody and hoping for the best. Is there anything else that you are um, working on at the moment or that you know is being worked on at the moment that you think might have a big clinical impact? One of our interests is really severe asthma and the early origins of asthma. We know that most, most, if not all, asthma starts very early in life. 
one of the things people thought was that we know that inhaled steroids are a great treatment for established school age asthma. They're life transforming. So why don't we give them early on and stop asthma developing? Mm -hmm. And that sounded like a great idea. All of us thought, yep, fantastic idea. And it was a fantastic idea, except it was completely wrong. It doesn't work. So Mm -hmm. what's actually triggering off asthma, the inception of asthma, and what is propagating asthma symptoms are completely different. We're pretty good at dealing with type 2 inflammation, which drives atopic allergic asthmatic symptoms. We don't know what are the steps between a baby being born, developing wheeze with viruses, and going on to atopic allergic asthma. And that's a fruitful area of study. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there are a number of studies going on in that field. One of the clues we have is from a natural experiment when two communities, the Amish and the Hutterites, in the 19th century fled Europe to avoid persecution uh, and went to North America. And these communities are genetically pretty close, pretty identical. Now, the Amish continued to use traditional farming methods and the Hutterites switched to modern methods. And the Amish have an incredibly low prevalence of allergic disease, asthma, atopy, compared to the Hutterites. And this chimes with other data in Europe. If you want to make sure that your child does not have asthma, get a job as a milkmaid in a Frisian hospital, bring your child into the stable as soon as it's born. And the combination, we don't know what component, but the combination seems very powerful at preventing atopic allergic disease. Now, of course, most of us are not going to be able to get employment (laughs) as a Frisian milkmaid or milkman. But if we could find out what is it in the early environment that is triggering this switch away from going to asthma and could deliver it, that would be really powerful. Mm -hmm. Because I think that's one of the best things about paediatrics is that you really are talking about illness prevention, disease prevention. And if you can prevent it being developing as in a child then you you have so many years of disease-free life ahead of you don't you oh absolutely and one of the things that we really got to get across to politicians and to adult doctors is if you want to try to prevent adult diseases it's too late by the time the patients become an adult you've got to start um, in in pregnancy and in the early school age the data are that your lung function, by the time you walk through the school gate for the first time, your lung function, for the most part, is set in stone for the next six decades. There's no, if you've damaged yourself in those early years or in, or in the pregnancy, it's too late to change it. Mm-hmm. So we've really got to focus on these early years and increasingly also transgenerational For example, at least two studies have shown that if a woman's mother smokes, her own children are more likely to get asthma, even if she herself doesn't smoke. There's evidence of exposure of of young men pre-puberty to to cigarette smoke affects their offspring's asthma risk. We've got to take early life experiences much, much more seriously. I was reading about the, I think people are becoming more aware, definitely within politics, about the impact of air pollution on early like childhood asthma, because there was that famous case of a girl in London who died, wasn't there? Yes, indeed. I mean, 
pollution is extremely important, uh, not just in, in respiratory diseases, but in cardiovascular and many other diseases. It's important in causing or being associated with bad asthma attacks. But there are challenging studies that if you expose, if pregnant women are exposed to pollution, the offspring lung function at age four and a half, five is impaired by the pollution they've experienced before they were born. And we've really got to get across that we do not need polluting vehicles in residential areas where women are going to be pregnant. We've mm -hmm. got to get on top of this. We simply cannot tolerate all this, the, the pollution that's that's we're taking for granted now. Um, well, hopefully we're sort of heading in the right direction, albeit slowly, um, with the expansion of ULEZ. Thank you very much for talking to us, Andy. Um, is there anything else that I haven't asked you that you think people should hear or you want to talk about? Well, I think one of, one of, the, one of the, the big dangers to paediatric health at the moment are e-cigarettes and vaping. Mm -hmm. And I'm afraid it's a bit of a hobby horse of mine. At the, the figures for the number of young people who are taking up vaping is going up and up and up, and it's really terrifying. Um, vaping exposes them to nicotine, and nicotine is a medication of addiction. Now, I, there's a big debate in the adult circles about whether e-cigarettes are good for smoking cessation, and that's not a debate I can contribute to because about the last time I saw an adult patient as a physician was about 40 years ago. But what is really worrying is that these things are being marketed to children. There's no question about it. You look at the advertising, you look at the you look at the flavorings, the dazzling displays of different flavors and colors in the shops, the fact they're being marketed in sports stadiums and sports shirts. They're being aggressively marketed at children. And we are sleepwalking into a generation of nicotine addicts unless something is done. If people think I'm exaggerating that, no, no, of course, they're not marketing to children. In the United States, Jules, an e-cigarette manufacturer, paid out half a billion, half a billion dollars to settle an investigation into the way that they were marketing at children. This is something we've really got to tackle. Mm -hmm. These things cause acute lung injury. People say, oh, they're much safer than cigarettes in the long term. The evidence for this is zero. It's just it's just opinion. We all thought cigarettes were safe <laughs> until we found they weren't. And this is a big threat to children at the moment. Mm -hmm. We need effective legislation to treat cigarettes and e-cigarettes exactly the same, yeah. at least in my view. And ban flavorings. You don't need flavorings. Ban advertising. I don't know how you control social media, but the so-called influencers on social media who are tr trying to persuade people to take these things up. Yeah. Tobacco is on the way out. Everybody knows that. So the companies have to find some way of making their money. And hooking young people is the way. You pointed out about child health, that if you can prevent it early on, you've got a lifetime of good health ahead of you. The flip side to that is if you get a kid addicted, you've got him for life. Yeah. Not much point in getting an old man like me addicted. I'll have, <laughs> pop, I'll have, I'll have popped my clocks long fairly soon and it won't be profitable. You want the young guys. That's what you want. 
I feel like we started off on a positive note with the CF drugs <laughs> and then have end, ending on a negative note with the vapes. But let's be positive. And the positive note I'd like to end on is mm-hmm. to encourage people into academic pediatrics. It is such an exciting field. I remember sitting yawning my way through biochemistry in when, I was a, when I was a preclinical med student about 100 years ago. <laughs> now the science, you know, it's so exciting. And you think... Well, and you think of the of the medications that we've got, and incredible the the interventions that are be, being done. More and more interventional radiology and, and and what used to be an open operation is is now just a sort of day case procedure with a with a catheter. The power mm. of modern anesthesia. I and mean, there's so many exciting things going on. Medicine can do so much, and there's so much scope to do more. You know, if anybody's listening and, and is thinking, should I go into medicine? Yes. You know, I qualified in 1978. And if you ask me, do I want to turn the clock back and do something else? Absolutely not. I cannot think of anything I would rather do than what I've done. That's amazing, really. My, my generation are much less positive, <laughs> I think, unfortunately. I know. And it's, I, I'm sorry. And I, I mean, perhaps this is out, out with the remit of this, but one of the things that is really important that we have to do is to find out why when medical students, when they join, are much brighter than they've ever been. I mean, I wouldn't have a prayer at getting into medical school now, not a prayer. But why? what are we doing wrong? Why are so many dropping out? Why are so many leaving the country and not sticking in medicine? We need to find that out. It's tragic. I and mean, when I went to my 40-year med school reunion, virtually everybody, unless they'd lost their health, were in practice, had had a lifetime in medicine, and thoroughly, were thoroughly fulfilled and enjoying it. What are we doing wrong for these bright young people? It's not they're stupid. They're cleverer than any of us. What are we doing wrong? Mm-hmm. But it's it's definitely been very um, inspiring and motivating to speak to you. And I think the interface between paediatrics and public health is very interesting. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, out in the community, there are children with more and more complex conditions being looked after in the community. That's another challenge. You know, when I, when I was a kid, the idea of a child with a tracheostomy, even leaving the ICU, was unheard of. Now they're at home, being looked after at home. It's extraordinary what technology is moving into the home and enabling these kids to be at home, living a much better quality of life. Thank you for listening to the Thorax podcast. I'm Kate Diamady. We will be publishing regular podcasts about some of the best content of the latest issue of the journal. If you don't want to miss it, please subscribe on your preferred platform to get it directly on your device each month. We'd also like to hear from you, so please get in touch through our social media channels or leave us a review on the Thorax podcast page on iTunes. Thank you and see you next month. Thank you.